From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Wills lay out who gets your stuff. Advanced directives are about end-of-life care. Today, we explore what are called legacy letters, which capture... The most important family history, values, and stories that one wants to impart. Really, it is the most important letter one will ever write. Meet a man who crafted one, making sure to tell the story of his parents, who were Holocaust survivors. They suffered, but they were able to build a new life and became uh, very proud Americans. Just as soon as he wrote this letter, he was in a life-changing accident. And later, the journey of migrants in Denver seeking asylum. He talked about going through the Panama jungle. When the river would be overflowing, he actually was getting fungi infections. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The letter was addressed to those whose lives I may have touched. And it began, I have tried to be a mensch and live a and meaningful, live a meaningful life. life as a dedicated physician, a son of Holocaust survivors, and a committed Jew. Dr. William Silvers, age 72, was writing what's been called an ethical will or a legacy letter, not a document that lays out who gets your stuff or what medical interventions you want but a distillation for loved ones of your story and of your philosophy of life. Silvers was just about done writing this letter last April when he was in a catastrophic accident. At the hospital, with some help, he put finishing touches on it before being taken into neurosurgery. I met Dr. Silvers at his home in Denver, where he's recovering. Dr. Silvers, thank you for having us. Thank you for uh, allowing us to be here with you. Before we talk about this accident, I'd like you to share more from this extraordinary letter. Your parents survived the Holocaust, and their experiences very much shaped who you are. They were at Auschwitz. Your father was on a death march. Um, But read for me the part about how they found each other after the war. Crisscrossing Europe, looking for one another, my parents met at the Red Cross kitchen at the Prague Railway Station in August 1945 and set out to begin a new life. Given my father's facility with languages, Polish, German, Yiddish, Russian, and finally English, he found work as a supply officer. When mom became pregnant with me in 1949, he quickly organized immigration papers to America since mom had family in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was critically important to my parents that I was not born on German soil, but to have every opportunity as a native-born American in the land of freedom. How did those experiences shape you, and why was it important to reflect them in your life letter, which is three pages? 
Well, the truth is that I look at life very much through the lens of the Holocaust. And quite honestly, I think that that is what has helped me look with appreciation to survive what I've gone through recently and look uh, positively into the future because as challenging as this is uh, with having a spinal cord injury, uh, it's not the Holocaust. Mm, That's always a point of comparison for you. Always a point of reference with my life. Does that mean you have no bad days? I definitely have bad days. But I don't think that they're as bad as they would be otherwise Mm. if I wouldn't be so sensitized by my parents' experiences in the war, in the Holocaust, in the camps, not knowing when the next uh, meal, the next beating, the next formation, numbers being called out, etc. That's kind of uncertainty. And they, you know, they suffered, but they were able to build a new life and became uh, very proud Americans because this was really the land of freedom and opportunity. You actually started a Holocaust bioethics program at CU. As we know, in many genocides, healthcare workers are often complicit. I mean, I think of Dr. Joseph Mengele and his horrific Holocaust experiments. Uh, This has been true as well for later genocides. In any case, there you are laying out your values, your life philosophy, thinking about your mortality, frankly. And, and tell us what happened last April, Doctor. Well, last April, um, interestingly, it was the, uh, the last day of Passover. And I uh, went to the synagogue and we do a memorial service for the departed. Then I went to uh, visit a friend of mine who said, you know, let me finally teach you how to play pickleball. We had been tennis buddies, you know, for years previously. And so I said, sure. So he showed me a video and then we went out on the court and 10 minutes into learning to play pickleball, I, I went for a shot at the net and I tripped. My head, top of the head went into the top wire of the tennis court and gave me a uh, hyperextension injury, flipped my head back, and that gave me a cervical, what they call a C4 spinal cord injury, impingement to my spinal cord. And I felt that I was suspended in air, and I knew I had a spinal cord injury, and maybe a quadriplegic at this point in time. What they call now at Craig Hospital a tetraplegic rather than a quadriplegic, you know, given the associations of that word, but made me uh, quadriplegic. Prior to the accident, to the injury, you had been working on this legacy letter. And in fact, I think you finished it in the hospital, right? I was uh, finishing it the week before uh, my accident. And it was very emotionally moving to write that. And then when I uh, was in the hospital and prior to going into neurosurgery was when uh, Nancy Sharp... Who we're going to meet in just a moment. ...came uh, and with a uh, friend of mine as a witness, 
uh, helped me finish up the last few words, signed off. And so I really uh, felt emotionally cleansed and much more prepared to go into uh, surgery for whatever the outcome may, uh, may be. Were you afraid you wouldn't survive? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, we had a number of complications, and so it was touch and go for a while. But emotionally, I felt clear that I had conveyed to those around me who I am, who I wish to be, and hopefully uh, how I wish for them to be better, to rise up and uh, be the best that each of us can be. Oh, this was not just a reflection of your own experience, but you were imploring the people around you to live a good life. I was wishing to uh, try and be an example of one who does try to live a life of integrity, let's say, a life of meaning and purpose and positivity. Nancy, how do you think Dr. Silver's experience illustrates the role a document like this can play? Well, I think that it is, without a doubt, one of the most uh, urgent reminders that we truly live for the moment and life can happen at any time. And why wait to say the things that need to be said? I think so many of us have been changed by our own life experiences, but certainly on a more global scale, the pandemic. And so many of us are questioning what what does it all mean? Hmm. What really matters? And I've begun to see some research point to the fact that people really truly want to live more purposefully. And I think that Bill's story really calls great attention to that. I can tell you for me personally, there is not a day that goes by that I don't think about him and what happened and how sacred it is that he was able to say these things that he had been running from most of his life. Mm. Um, You'd been running from them, doctor. I'd been running hard. not wanting the, the black cloud that I had uh, been my parents' experience mm-hmm. to, uh, to envelop me. So I think I hear you saying, Nancy, that there's a lot of searching going on right now. Yes. And that there's power in writing down at least what you think you know about that search. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think of people as perhaps journaling, Right, and maybe this is may, different. Maybe their writing is discovered by a loved one after the fact. Right. Talk to me about the role an ethical will plays right. in, in the universe of end of life documents. You know. Well, okay, that's a wonderful question. So the ethical will, the life letter, as I like to call it, because it really is an affirming document that is meant to be a touchstone for now. It's also a legacy document, that's true, but I think that this letter is a way to transform the living. Mm. It's a way to transform somebody's life right now as well as for future generations. So my perspective is that it really should be a document that's cause for celebration. And not necessarily one that's done towards the end of life. No, and in fact, I encourage people that I work with to present this document 
as a celebratory occasion, whether it's for a holiday or for a special milestone or some other touchstone event. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's something that can be shared with uh, state attorneys. Yes, it is something that frequently complements a legal will and binding documents, but it's not written by attorneys. It's written <laughs> by real people. And it's and, warm. And it's warm. In and a way that a really, legal document isn't. No, it's definitely not warm. <laughs> the legal documents, I, I have just done mine, and um, I didn't understand a word of what they were writing. This I get. No, this is really meant to be a distillation, though, of the most important family history, values, life lessons, and stories that one wants to impart. Really, it is the most important letter one will ever write. Yeah, it's pithy. It's pithy. Yes. It's, which does not mean it isn't profound, no. by the way. Um, Dr. Silvers notes in his letter that he has no children. Yes. What does that tell us about the role these letters can play? Well, and he's not the only person I work with who has no children, because I think that this is a way to uh, leave something for yourself, for your communities, and your loved ones. As I said, it's a way to better understand your own life. It's a way to uh, engage deeper with your, your community. And sometimes people write more than one. That can be sometimes feel a little bit overwhelming, but... I love the way that Bill addressed his, his life letter to those whose lives I may have touched. If I may, I will say that when originally approached with this, I thought, why should I write a life letter or an ethical will, a legacy letter? With Nancy's encouragement and that of a few others, I felt that it would be um, worthwhile for myself and hopefully for others, my patients, my friends, mm-hmm. my family, my colleagues, that it would be a, lo- a love letter, you know, mm. uh, to them and, and to my community. Um, and people write these in very unique, creative ways. What have I, you seen? I, well, I have, I, I have students who have written them as recipe books. I have poems. I actually have a, a client in Ohio whom I've never met who loves music, and he wrote his entire letter to a soundtrack. And then he put the words along with the music that he made for his family. Those feel experiential, you know, the notion that I could cook a dish and be connected or listen to a piece of music. Exactly. I wanted to say also that this is something that is for everybody. It's open to people of all religions and all backgrounds. There's no one right way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. And the wrong way to do it is to cast blame or to criticize or to think of it as your autobiography. It is not those things. Oh, it's not a chance to air grievances, it you're saying. It is not a chance huh. to air grievances, but it is an opportunity to air regrets. Bill does that beautifully in his life letter. But about, it about is, how much he worked and the right, balance and between the sacrifices and that he had to make because of that. Mm. So it's a, and that's oftentimes one of the first things that people recognize when they do this work is they do think about the things they're grateful for as well as the regrets. Was it hard to get to the regret part, Doctor? No, it was important to uh, to address the. Uh, regrets and put them in perspective, quite frankly. And I might add that uh, I don't know how often Nancy has done this with others, but part of the beauty of approaching this 
was the opportunity to send special letters to those who you wish to communicate a better relationship in life. Nancy, how does your own experience with life and loss shape this work? Well, I think that it gives me um, a certain frame of mind that I have carried with me ever since losing my first husband to brain cancer when our twins were two and a half years old. Had anybody ever conveyed the importance of a simple life letter, that would have been like gold to our twins, who are now 21 years old and have virtually no memories of him. So I feel a certain responsibility. I don't share my experience with others necessarily, but it's just a part of who I am, mm. and it imbues my whole outlook. It's, it's what I was meant to be doing, to help other people leave their mark in the world in this way. Without such a document, I imagine that you, as a mom, have had to piece together the equivalent, perhaps, of this for your kids. I try. Gathering here and there, huh? I try to do that. I tell stories. I actually, just this summer, finally got around to converting old media. (laughs) Um, So it's the first time my children have ever seen him walk, have seen their dad walk, talk, move. I am remarried to a wonderful man, Steve Saunders, and he also had a a very traumatic loss in his life, too. So um, he is a wonderful partner in terms of helping me to, helping the twins actually refer to their biological dad. It's it's a tricky thing when Mm -hmm. you have had loss like that on on both sides. But uh, certainly the opportunity to put on paper my life letter was really important for me to do. You weren't going to leave them without that. There is no way I would do that. And, you know, in order to do this work with so many other people around the country, I had to uh, walk the walk. (laughs) You offer a service helping people craft these ethical wills. I do. I work with people individually. I work with groups. It was such a wonderful experience to work with the Rose Community Foundation and a group of legacy donors last year, of which Bill was a part And I'm so thrilled that we're doing it again. And I love to work with other community foundations and to do retreats. For those on a tighter budget, is there a guide they could follow on their own somehow? Sure. You know, it can be as simple as a letter. I mean, I would encourage people to think about uh, who it is in their life they would like to acknowledge. Who's your audience? Who's your audience is the most important thing. Do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? Are you writing this to your family at large? Are you writing this to your community at large the way Bill did? And then I would just encourage them to think about perhaps the most important values, maybe two or three values that they want to impart, and maybe any family history that feels especially rich to share, and any stories I think the thing that is so um, inspiring about the life letter is how powerful it is for the person who's writing it today, as well as it serving as a document that can connect the generations over time. That's huge. And that's what you do in your letter, Doctor. It strikes me that at a time of increasing anti-Semitism and even Holocaust denialism, that to keep those stories alive, as Nancy says, through the generations is a service as well. Oh, I describe myself as feeling uh, as a, a generational link between uh, 
my parents' uh, generation and their history and the war and the future, which can be, you know, very bright once we learn the lessons of the past. And I must say that I tend to look at the past a lot, especially now with this disability, and I refer to it often that I, this is not the Holocaust. This is not fun. It's a great challenge, but it is not as bad as things could be. And uh, to look at it in that way so that you put the past in perspective mm. to give you a basis to form your own positive future. That's resilience. Yeah, I don't know if I'd have it. No, you never know if you mm -hmm. have it or not until you're faced with it. But mm -hmm. I will say that people can reach deep when they do. Mm -hmm. Being a physician, my line is that if, as long as you're breathing, mm. you have a chance to have a better breath in life going forward. You just got to keep breathing and keep going for the, the, the positive because we're you got to be appreciative that we're alive. And I can say that from personal experience. Now I'm thinking about my next breath, which I'm grateful to take. Yes, absolutely. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Nancy Sharp of Denver, who helps people like Dr. Bill Silvers write ethical wills or life letters. We'll link to Dr. Silvers' letter in today's podcast at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. And our show continues in the next half hour with all that we know about the migrants who've arrived in Denver in the last month, their journeys, their legal status, their uncertain futures. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. The night her home burned in the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history, Jessica Carson of Louisville committed to rebuilding. It's been a year. <laughs> Not quite sure how we got here, but worked with a lot of great people, and the community's just been amazing. I'm Joe Wirtz from the CPR Climate Team. Since last year's devastating Marshall Fire, CPR News has looked at the cause and the damage done. After months of cleanup, the community is rebuilding. Listen to CPR News and come to CPR.org as the story continues. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Migrants, hundreds of them, have arrived in Metro Denver in the past month. The city and state have spent upwards of a million dollars to accommodate them. Let's go beyond the numbers, though, and get a sense for who these folks are, what brought them here. My colleagues Stephanie Rivera and Kevin Beatty spoke with some of the migrants staying at Denver's emergency shelters. And hello to you both. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. I understand people were a little hesitant at first to speak, uh, given what they're going through. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we did conduct these interviews in Spanish, and we were just wanting to make sure that they understood what it meant to be interviewed by us. And they were scared, uh, you know, if we were connected with Border Patrol. They didn't know what kind of officials we were. So we were just trying to make sure, you know, we had them comfortable and uh, confident in their and privacy. In informed, too. Exactly. Yeah. We spoke with three people. All three of them said they would prefer not to use their real last names um, for their privacy. So we respected that in our story. But there was one guy, Johnny, that we met. Um, I met him at a shelter when I was allowed to come inside to take some photographs of the space. And he looked right at me and was like, hey, man, come take my picture. And from there, we started talking through Google Translate. And he gave me his number. He said, give me a call. And so we took him and his friend to a Starbucks in Central Park to talk to them a little bit more. What, what does it mean, by the way, to use Google Translate for this? I just want a picture of that. I was typing things to him, and he was typing things back to me. So we were sort of, you know, on this Tower of Babel. What did Johnny tell you? 
Johnny comes from Venezuela, and he basically took a journey of going through eight different countries, all the way through Central America and up through Mexico. He talked about going through the Panama jungle and seeing just the different types of terrors facing not just himself, but other people, especially families with young children. Um, he talked about when the river would be overflowing, that he actually was getting fungi infections. Um, he talked about people drowning when there was a lot of rain and, and causing the river to overflow. And then the, the biggest thing, the biggest issue for him was seeing the cartels and working with the cartels because he had no money to gain passage. That was the only way for him to do so. To keep moving. Yes. He, he had to, to work to pay. Exactly. Um and that's something that really stuck with him, as well as, you know, he left a family back in Venezuela as well. And when he saw families with young children, he gravitated towards them and helping them. You know, he'd carry children on their backs as they, you know, hike through and just um, seeing some of the ordeals that he witnessed others go through as well. Vi mucho terror, muchas violaciones en Panamá con los inmigrantes. Más que todo, violar a los inmigrantes. Eso fue lo más terrible que todavía matar y descuartizar personas por no tener 100 dólares en el dólar. Basically, what Johnny is saying, and I'm quoting in this part, is he says, killing and dismembering people for not having $100 in their pocket. That's the most terrifying thing that I've been through on this trip. And the most beautiful thing was to come to the United States. So just kind of seeing that um, opposite feelings of terror and then just, you know, grateful to finally land here. But he was really just shocked with how, you know, the way that he described the cartel is just very brutal and inhumane as well. Well, given all those risks, why make the crossing? So what they're telling us is that, you know, there's just no economic opportunity for them over there. People are starving and they're also being harassed by government officials and military personnel. So really, this is all worth it for them. It's just there's no life to be had there. This is hope for them. Exactly. We met this other guy, Kevin, who was staying at a shelter run by a local church. And he told us, you know, really the same thing, that he was living in Venezuela. He was a college student. He had a business. As the economy collapsed there, as it has over the last decade, you know, his ability to stay and make a life for himself disappeared completely. And it made those risks worth it. Creo que mi fuerza de voluntad se iba a derrumbar y me iba a ir de nuevo a Venezuela. Así me mataran, no sé, pues no sé lo que iba a pasar conmigo. Porque ya era como seis meses en estar seis meses aquí en, en México sufriendo porque eso es un infierno. Just as a background, he had mentioned to us that he had crossed the border once into the U.S., and when he did so, he checked in with uh, border agents, and they actually deported him back to Tijuana. Um, and so he made his way all the way back to the El Paso border, and there he faced a decision where he could either go back through the port of entry, check in with border agents, and he knew that process was going to be about three months, or he can go you know, through the border without checking in, and what he was telling us at that point was, you know, I think my willpower was going to collapse and I was going to go back to Venezuela. Even if, if they, he had to wait another three months. Exactly. Exactly. And he said, even if they killed me, because they treat that as treason if they go back. I know that these folks also told you of their desire to work. Can they work, Kevin? I mean, the answer is maybe. 
there are provisions that if somebody applies for asylum and they're here long enough to try and work out that case, that there will be a window of time in which they can have a job legally in the country. But while that process works itself while out. While that process works itself out. Some people are fast-tracked and they will lose that opportunity altogether. And other folks are going to work off the books. And it's worth saying that it is worth it to some people to work for a couple of months off the books, making perhaps less than minimum wage, given the economic situations between here and a place like Venezuela. Johnny, who we quoted at the top, said, you know, if he could work for a couple of weeks and make a couple hundred dollars to send to his family, that would be super transformational for them. And with Kevin, he said that he wanted to actually give it a shot. Venezuela. E irme, desistir, porque me tocaba dormir en la calle, pedir dinero, que no estoy acostumbrado, nunca en mi vida he estado acostumbrado. A mí me da pena pedir algo. He comes from a middle-class family. You know, he went to college. He had a business, but, you know, everything folded. You know, that's just how it is in, in Venezuela right now. And he was telling me that he didn't really like asking for help. Um, that was something that he really had to come to terms with, um, just begging. But he knew that it was either that or going to bed hungry. And that's what he's saying here as well. But he, he too, has the desire to work. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The experiences that we heard about highlights is sort of how complicated all of this is. Um, The reason that Kevin was sent out of the country, he actually technically wasn't deported. He was just sort of escorted out, is a policy called Title 42, which is a Trump-era policy that came out of COVID, basically using the pandemic as a reason to stop people from coming in to legally ask for asylum. So basically, you know, anyone can come to the U.S. border. They can try and cross at a port of entry and ask for asylum. But um, if you're from a, a suite of countries, you will be just sent back unceremoniously, and you'll have to wait until such point at which you can come inside and, and ask to stay. Because of Title 42, a lot of people are just crossing in and encountering Border Patrol inside the United States and then asking for asylum or skipping it altogether and hoping to apply later down the road. And the trickiest thing here is that asylum is extremely complicated. It really takes having a lawyer or knowledge of the system to be able to navigate it correctly. And a lot of people who apply for it do not get it. And so people are making these incredible journeys, really difficult and dangerous journeys to come to a country that may very well send them back. And Title 42 for now remains in place. This idea that people might check in at a border checkpoint, but not be allowed entry, even though they're claiming asylum. That's correct. Um, The Biden administration has been trying to pull it down. There was a collection of Republican states that filed a motion to say, you can't take this away yet. The Supreme Court put an injunction in place and is currently its its future is in limbo at the moment. But a lot of immigration advocates that we have spoken to who work near the border are expecting that at some point this policy is going to go away. And once that happens, two or three years of buildup of people waiting to come into the country will start to cross in. We're talking about laws and lives in limbo. Uh, Kevin, you spent some time in immigration court. What did you see there? Yeah, so I did a whole day in November. I wanted to just see what it looked like inside. And it was really sort of strikingly procedural. Um, It was a lot of people's first day in court, families coming in with kids playing on the floor and a judge basically like reciting by rote uh, their rights in the court and sort of their next steps. And a big piece of his presentation to these people is the court cannot provide you legal counsel. If you can afford legal counsel or if you would like to try and find pro bono help, we'll give you more time to do that. But there is no public defender system within Mm -hmm. immigration court. Interesting. So inside the court, there's an office with a single lawyer from the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network. They're a group of attorneys that work on these issues. And they are essentially the safety 
net. They can't provide legal help to everyone, but they can point people in the right direction to say, well, if we can't help you, here's maybe how you can help yourself. And it's you know really like a pretty small operation holding up a lot of people trying to help people figure out their cases. Wow. What are the odds for these folks? Research shows that if you don't have an attorney, you're more, much more likely to lose your case. There is this other sort of separate area called the dedicated docket. This is the fast track that folks from countries in Central and South America that are in family units um, will sort of get fast tracked. Um, and since that has been enacted by the Biden administration, only 7% of defendants have actually won asylum in that case. 7%. The vast majority then are told to return. That's correct. And immigration attorneys that I've spoken to have said, like, this is extremely difficult and there are definitely not enough legal resources to help people mount a successful case. Stephanie, it seems like the odds are, well, nearly insurmountable, but the people you spoke with say they've got to try. That's correct. Um, Something that stood out to me was they said, you know, we've crossed nearly a dozen countries and we'll cross nearly a dozen more. Um, you know, if U.S. can't help them, they'll go to Canada. They they just have this willpower in them that they know what they're leaving behind. It's just not helping them that they're looking for hope and they're looking for a future. Le queremos dar a entender y darse cuenta de que vemos pasar 10 países de tanto sufrimiento, de tanta hambre que vinimos con todo el amor del mundo a prestarle un, un servicio de mano de obra y de trabajo de corazón. Porque What Johnny's saying is that he wants us to understand that we're giving him stability, that we're giving the migrants stability, that many families that are in Venezuela are suffering from hunger and need. And so, he, you know, he was thanking the U.S., he was thanking, um, you know, the shelters and, and the city and everything that they were doing, um, and just very grateful. After we had coffee with these guys, there was a really sort of extraordinary moment where we were in the middle of the Central Park Town Square. It is lit up for Christmas. And these two guys were like wide eyed. I mean, they saw a school bus and they were like, oh, my God, we've only ever seen a school bus in movies. I think uh, Steph said it was Die Hard was the movie <laughs> they had seen school bus. Speaking and, of Christmas. <laughs> speaking of Christmas. And, and just these lights. I mean, one guy it was freezing outside and, and um, Johnny's friend who was with us spent like a solid 20 minutes outside just like taking pictures and selfies under the trees. And it was kind of just, it was really, really interesting to see sort of them enjoying the fruits of their labor, you know, even though it might not last that long. Mm. What can you tell us, Kevin, about the number of migrants who've arrived in Metro Denver in recent weeks? Uh, We know that Denver's mayor declared a state of emergency to free up services to help them. That's right. Uh, The city says that at least 2,700 people have arrived in Denver in just December alone. And they told us, as you said at the top, that they've spent over a million dollars on all the sheltering, staffing, food, all that kind of stuff. We know that people are coming to Denver because cities along the border have been overwhelmed um, and there are not as many resources as there usually is. And uh, Denver is a safe place to come. It's a direct bus line north from El Paso. Are more arrivals expected, Stephanie? Yes. um, So we're seeing them daily still. And someone from the mayor's office actually told us that these shelters are expected to be open for months. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks for having us. CPR's Stephanie Rivera and Denverite's Kevin Beatty reporting on the hundreds of migrants who arrived in Metro Denver in December. Read our coverage at CPR.org and Denverite.com. If you are wondering how to help these recent arrivals, a state-sanctioned fund has been set up on their behalf. It is through the Rose Community Foundation, and it's called the Newcomers Fund. The new year brings with it changes 
to Colorado's paychecks, to shopping habits, and more. That's as new laws and policies take effect here. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny talked about some of them with Mike Lamp, starting with the state's new paid family leave program. I imagine that that gets people's attention uh, right off the top when you hear that changes may be coming to your <laughs> paycheck. Uh, why don't we start there? Yeah, it definitely got my attention. Starting on January 1st, a lot of workers will see a new line item on their paycheck. Their employers will be withholding up to about half a percent of their income. That's, if you do the math, it's going to be like four and a half dollars to be specific for every $1,000 of wages. And this is affecting every private employee in the state unless your company decides to cover this new government fee for you. All that money is going to pay for the state's new family, F-A-M-L-I, paid leave program, which is basically a huge new insurance program that will guarantee workers of all stripes can get paid time off for childbirth and other life events. And these deductions start now, but when will people actually be able to use the program to take paid leave? Uh, that will not start now. It's going to be another year before the actual program launches in 2024. But they are collecting the premiums now to build up the fund. And the fund's going to be used to actually replace the people's wages while they're on that new paid leave. Now, CPR, Colorado Public Radio, where you and I work, uh, already offers paid leave. How does that work for employees like us? Well, eventually, companies will be allowed to get exempted from this cost and their employers if the law finds that they have a comparable paid leave benefit like we do. Um, In those cases, neither, neither the company nor the employees have to contribute to this new government program. But the catch is that the state hasn't set up a way to get that exemption yet. That'll come later this year, they said. But for now, everybody has to pay into the fund. And if your company eventually gets an exemption, you should be able to get the premiums you paid in already back. Okay. Now, the new year also generally brings a change uh, for other workers, uh, those who earn Colorado's minimum wage. What is that moving to? Yeah. On January 1st, the statewide hourly minimum wage will increase by $1.09 to $13.65 for regular employees and $10.63 for tipped employees. In Denver, which is the only city to set its own minimum wage in Colorado, the regular rate will will increase to $17.29 an hour. Those changes are based on the past year's inflation rates. Obviously, there's been this long, painful rise in prices we all experienced. And that means that the minimum wage increase is a lot bigger than normal at almost 9%. So that's a slight silver lining, especially for the state's lowest wage workers. It's also a new cost that employers will either absorb or pass along to customers. Now, there are changes uh, coming to the money that people earn and also uh, some changes on the way for how people spend money. I'm thinking of this new bag fee that's uh, now in effect across the state. Yes, so all stores are now required to charge $0.10 for every paper or plastic bag they provide to a customer, charging that money to the customer. Local governments have the option to set the fee even higher. This is the next step toward a statewide ban on single-use plastic bags. That takes effect a year from now, a total ban on plastic bags. The same law will also ban single-use foam food containers. I know that shoppers in Denver have already been paying this bag fee, and now it goes statewide. And where does the money that's raised by the fee go? So 40% of the fee revenues will go to the store. 
60% will go to local governments, which will use the fee money to pay for overhead costs for collecting the fee, as well as programs for things like recycling and related stuff. Uh, now, finally, last year, you spent a lot of time covering the state's uh, changing policy on fentanyl, and some of those rules uh, take effect with the new year. That's right. So there was a big new law on fentanyl passed in 2022, and it created harsher criminal penalties. Those already went into effect. But with the new year, the state's also adding some requirements for jails, courts, and treatment providers. For example, jails will now have to connect people with treatment options as they're leaving jail, giving them a way to get treated after they're not incarcerated anymore, rather than just while they're in jail. And that is CPR Public Affairs reporter Andrew Kenny speaking with our colleague Mike Lamp about laws that have just taken effect. When we come back, Colorado wonders about Colorado Boulevard. You're with CPR News. Fixing an entire education system isn't simple. It's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing, but they can tell you that it's racist. I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is back for season two, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Boulevard might just be Metro Denver's most reviled road. It's congested, full of long lights, and it can be dangerous to walk or bike. CPR transportation reporter Nathaniel Miner dug into the boulevard's history and tells us about its potentially very different future. Becky McBride lives in a cute bungalow on a quiet block in Denver's Congress Park neighborhood. Hey! Hey, How's Becky. it going? Hello. There's a school nearby. When our windows are open or we're sitting on the front porch, we can hear the kids playing, and I love it. <laughs> and we walk our dogs. Everybody's just really friendly. We can walk to everything. Well, not quite everything. There's a hard eastern border to this pedestrian paradise. We walk a few blocks to see it. Colorado Boulevard. So we've walked all of two blocks and you're now yelling just so I can hear you. <laughs> that totally true. And you'll notice if you want to be on the outside, you're going to have to sign a waiver or something because yeah, we don't you might to go lose your life. We don't need to go too much further. The sidewalk is narrow. Cars speed up and down the six lanes of traffic. McBride says she and her family often drive just a few blocks because walking feels so dangerous. And she wants to know, what is the deal with this road? What was the original plan for Colorado Boulevard? And, you know, what, what did it look like back in the day? Or was it one of these majestic streets like 7th Avenue or Monaco? Or was it just always, you know, an armpit? Okay, that's a lot of questions. But I found just the guy who can answer them. Back in the 1930s, Alan Gass was a young kid who lived on Colorado Boulevard, just south of Colfax. What was it like to walk up and down the street? Well, it was just fine. I mean, it was a detached sidewalk. It was just no trouble to walk the two blocks to the grocery store. Back then, Colorado Boulevard was on Denver's eastern fringe. Streetcars still roamed the city. And the homes and businesses near Colorado and Colfax were more typical of the pre-automobile era, denser and more pedestrian-friendly. Trees lined both sides of the street. And even as a kindergartner, 
Gas would walk to school, to the drugstore, and to friends' houses on both sides of the boulevard. Was it loud? Was it quiet? What did it smell no like? Noise. There was no noise, and there, there was no smell because there wasn't the quantity of traffic that we have now. Gas left for Harvard to become an architect in the late 1940s. And while he was gone, American cities like Denver boomed. Like many growing crowded cities, Denver is reaching out to form suburbs for pleasant, wholesome living. Automobiles promised more mobility, more freedom. Denver streetcars were ripped out. Car companies pushed cities to rebuild their roads. The green light must shine along improved neighborhood streets, rounding square corners for the wheels of the automotive age. In Denver, the city and state made Colorado Boulevard a lot wider. They cut down trees and took sidewalk space to make room. Alan Gass returned to Denver, and in the early 60s, he bought a home just a block off Colorado Boulevard near Cherry Creek. It was very different. It was already developed to this width, and uh, the difference was in the buildings. The new buildings weren't like the old ones that Gass walked to as a kid. The new Denver, and especially Colorado Boulevard, was built for the car. New shopping centers and restaurants had big parking lots. Now, it's up to 11 lanes wide, including turn lanes. Nearly 70,000 cars travel on it every day. And it's dangerous. More than 25 fatal crashes have happened on the boulevard over the last decade. What do you think of this road now? Well, nobody likes it. (laughs) My wife really didn't even want to drive Colorado Boulevard. She would always take university. I ran all of this by Becky McBride from Congress Park. Right. Huh. So. Wow. Yeah. What do you think? I think that's really interesting. I shared some news with McBride, too. CDOT and other agencies are planning to beef up bus service on Colorado Boulevard, perhaps even turning two vehicle lanes into bus-only lanes. They plan to make the road safer for pedestrians as well. That means the new vision for Colorado Boulevard is more akin to its distant past. McBride likes the sound of that. It was a pleasant street once, and she hopes it can be that again someday soon. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. All right, what do you wonder about in Colorado? Send your question and put us on the case at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Finally today, one last holiday hurrah, the tail end of the tinsel. We're going to leave you with a song, a bonus, that didn't make it into this year's Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza. It features our headliner, Neela Pekarik, and pianist Annie Booth. The tune is a nod to Judy Garland, who is our muse for this big annual event. From 1954's A Star is Born and 2022's Dating Life of Ryan Warner, here's The Man That Got Away, as sung by Neela Pekarik. The night is bitter The stars have lost their glitter The wind grows colder And suddenly you're older And all because of the man That got away No more 
Carrick singing The Man That Got Away with Annie Booth on piano. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that has stuck around. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.